you got a Bible, you can go to Galatians chapter six. That's where we'll be today. <clears throat> and forgive me, I'm just the last vestiges of a little bit of a cold today. So uh, as you're going to Galatians six, let me just go off script for a moment. I know you all love it when I do that. Um, I want to make sure we understand what we just sang, almost just... I, are there moments in worship where you feel just carried along by the Spirit? And there's this sense that as our voices come together and we say things like, He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. There's that sense of something bigger than yourself happening in the room. And I want to explain why that happens, because it's not emotionalism. Some people get worried about that, you know? I, I don't believe we have a lot of need to fear that in probably in this context. Um, but <laughs> here's, what, here's what is happening in that moment. So what we just sang is a combination of Daniel 7 and Revelation 5. And George and his team do such a great job of rooting us in the scriptures in what we sing. But in Daniel 7, there's this beautiful picture of the Ancient of Days, which that term is to say the one who predates all the days. The one whose existence goes long before all the days. And that this Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 shows up and there's been this uh, rebellious antichrist and these nations warring against the purposes of God and the Ancient of Days shows up and he just, he, he puts them all away. And it says that when the Ancient of, Day, ancient of Days arrives, he sits on a throne and, a, and a, a flaming river of fire goes forward from the throne. And it says that thousands upon thousands serve him and Ten thousands upon ten thousands worship him. And then, right after that, after them putting to death all those who are in rebellion against him, the Son of Man shows up on the scene. And the Son of Man is the name that Jesus took for himself. And it says, the Son of Man now comes. And instead of being pushed out and cast away, the Son of... I'm sorry, I'm getting choked up. Just a breath, hold on. The Son of Man then we are told by the ancient of days is given a throne and given a kingdom and given eternal worship. So the ancient of days puts away everyone in a rebellion against him, but exalts the son of man. And then marry that. So that's when we sing the ancient of days. It was in that second song. And then we sang from Revelation 5, the worthiness of Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain. And now it completes the picture because the one who receives the praise, the son of man, is the lamb who was slain in Revelation 5, who is worthy of opening the scrolls of God's purposes in history. And therefore he, as the lamb, is given blessing and honor and glory. And we are told that every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth worships him. We didn't come just to play church today. We came to do something supernatural. If you feel carried along in worship, the reason is it's because you're joining all of the march of history in doing something supernatural, which is lifting your praise to God. It's not play. And it's not emotionalism. It is joining the, the, the work of God down through the ages. That's what you're doing as you respond with, is anyone worthy? He is. He is. That's why it feels that way when you do that. And it should feel that way. It's right to have your emotions swell and lift when you're declaring something that is from eternity past into eternity future. You're joining something that is timeless, that goes beyond time and will exist 
It's the, it, one of the only eternal things will be the praise of God forever. So that had nothing to do with anything else we're going to talk about today, but we needed to see that. Okay, I actually do have a bit of housekeeping. Sorry to like jolt us now over into something else. But a bit of housekeeping that I need to do. Um, You know, as a church, we're always striving to get better at what we do, right? Getting better at serving the purposes of God and the mission of God that he's put us on here. And so it's helpful from time to time to back up and get a big view of that. And we need your help to do that. So we've recruited an outside group to help us see our gaps and our holes and the places where we're doing well and the places where we need to grow a little bit. And so you are gonna get an email. If you get emails from the church, you're getting an email this afternoon and it's just a short survey. Can I emphasize this to you? It is not a consumer customer service survey. Okay. It's a service for, it's a survey that we're asking you to help us see ourselves clearly. How are we living out the purpose of God in our midst? So it'll take you 20 to 30 minutes to fill out. Please do it before the 19th. We need your help just in terms of backing up and getting that good assessment so that we can keep doing Uh, and getting better at doing what God has called us and invited us to do. If you are technology averse, we have hard copies uh, out the back door. So you can grab one of those, but you have to return it or otherwise we have no idea what you want us to know, all right? So uh, that, and also if you're not, if you don't get emails from us, you can go on the website. There's a link there and you can take it that way. If this is your church home, if whether you're a member, regular tender, if this is the place you call your church, uh, we want to hear from you, Okay. All right, let me pray for us and let's dive into Galatians chapter six, verses six through 10. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for our team who has led us so beautifully in singing your praises. And man, our hearts just are full from that. And so now with those full hearts, help us to turn to your word uh, and to delight in the treasures that we find therein and to submit to its authority. We ask that you would instruct us and transform us and change us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's read Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10. (coughs) And again, excuse my cough there. Some of you coughed in response to my cough. All right, here we go. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. If you're feeling tired today in the tasks God has given you, can I just repeat that for you? Let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right, so that's our text for today. Now here's what I wanna do. I wanna see if I can't back us up out of just this one set of verses and help us see it in its context again more broadly because as we've gone through Galatians, you remember the first two chapters are really about Paul saying why his ministry was valid and had authority and his voice they should listen to. And then in chapters three and four, we got into the real crux of the issue for the Galatians, which he was arguing very uh, 
uh, unabandonedly to say, you cannot get right with God through the things that you do. You can't be justified by your works. So let go of this legalistic impulse and understand that you can only be right with God through faith in Jesus, through his finished work and by believing in it. I mean, that's, that's the crux of the argument of Galatians. But here's my concern. We've gotten into chapters five and six and from about chapter five, verse 14 on, what we've seen is a list of commands. A lot of commands, bear one another's burdens, love your neighbor, uh, you know, don't envy one another, don't, uh, so yeah, just a list of commands. And because we're kind of moving slowly through the book, it might be easy for us to disconnect all these commands from what came before, which is this idea that we are justified only by faith and not by works. And if we separate those two, we're going to go, yeah, 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 we got chapter three and four, and then we're just gonna get into all these commands. We're gonna go, now I'm gonna do them in my own strength, and I'm just gonna reinforce that legalistic instinct. And so we need to keep them connected. Does that make sense? So remember in chapter five, verse 14, we heard this phrase. We heard, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And everything that came after that was really just an unpacking of how to walk by the spirit. What does it mean to every day take the hand of the spirit and walk with him? What does it mean to access his power? And so what I want you to see is that all these commands that we have received, and there are many, they are absolutely commands. You and I are to do them. But there is a huge distinction between commands given under the law and commands given in Christ. And here's one of the big differences. Commands given in the law are commands, plain and simple, and there's no power given to meet those commands. They just hang over you. Commands given in Christ are also given with the power of the Spirit so that they might be kept. So they are life-giving commands rather than crushing commands. Commands in the law were meant to crush you. They were meant to teach you you couldn't keep them. They were meant to teach you about your own unrighteousness. Commands given now in Christ and under his authority are given with the power of the Spirit so that you could fulfill them and walk in them and obey them and feel the freedom and the joy and the hope of doing so. Does this make sense? Now, here's the big thing. I want you to see then, anytime you see a command under the new covenant of the blood of Jesus, you're not just seeing a command, you're seeing an invitation to access the power of the Spirit. Because every one of those commands is given with the Spirit's power to complete it and to keep it and to walk in it. Therefore, a command to bear one another's burdens is a command to as you do that, you will receive power from on high and you will access the power of the Spirit. Now, here's why this is important, because often we think about revival and we pray for revival and we should. And revival is just simply an out, a unique outpouring of the power of the Spirit that most often brings with it a deeper sense of fellowship with the Father, conversion of the lost into salvation, deep conviction of sin and putting it away and a, and a walking forward in righteousness. That, that's what revival really and truly is, that's what it brings about. It's often accompanied by sometimes signs and wonders. It's often accompanied by long seasons of worship and prayer and a sweetness of that and a lingering of God's people and a sense of being lifted up in his presence together. All that is sweet and good and we should pray for it. But when we see these commands, often we think about them as they are, as preparing the altar for God to pour out the fire of revival upon them. And no doubt we prepare our hearts by obeying these commands but I also want you to see that there's another kind of revival. It's what I might call an everyday revival. Because if revival is an outpouring of the power of the Spirit, and we are invited to receive the power of the Spirit by walking in these commands, 
then it is a way to think about these commands as I am walking in an everyday kind of revival because the Spirit's power is accessed by living out these commands. Does that make sense? All right, now there, again, I, I'm not discounting the unique outpouring of a sort of broad revival because God does that. And when he does, it's powerful and necessary and helpful. But I also want you to think about the everyday revival of walking in the power of the Spirit through these commands. So how do we access the power of the Spirit? By walking in these commands. And watch as the power of the Spirit, you experience it more fully, you walk in it, you watch it. Because that's really what chapters five and six are all about. How do you walk by the Spirit? How do you access the power of the Spirit? And so today what we have is two commands and one motivation. Command, motivation, command. That's the way the text lays out. And again, they are commands given so that we might access the power of the Spirit through them. And I'll try to explain to you how that happens as you live out these commands, okay? And then there's a motivation given, and that's where you saw this, you're gonna reap what you sow, all right? So let's talk about those then. Command, motivation, command. All right, so the first command is found in verse six, and it's super simple. It's be generous, be generous. You wanna access the power of the Spirit, walk in the power of the Spirit, be generous. Now there's a specific kind of generosity that he talks about. Here it is in verse six. Let's read it again. Let the one who is taught the word Share all good things with the one who teaches. Preachers are tempted to just only talk about this verse on this day. That didn't get as big a laugh as I thought it would, all right. All right, so be generous. But what he's really talking about is not just like, hey, support those who teach the word. That is the specific example he's given, giving. But broader, he's clearly wanting to invite you into a heart of generosity, and that's expressed in this specific way. Now, what is generosity? Generosity is not being held captive to your material goods, right? It's being able to give joy and therefore giving joyfully and sacrificially from those so that you are not beholden to them, so that they don't hold you captive. That's, that's what generosity is, is giving freely, joyfully, sacrificially, not clinging to material things. And he's saying that this is a marker of those who are in Christ. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 helps us understand why. If you are in Christ, this heart can't help but take hold of you. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9 says, For you know, for you know the, the poverty of Christ. Yet though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And he's, talking about, he's not talking about material wealth there. He's talking about what actual wealth is. He's saying, Jesus Christ left the throne, left his throne in heaven and entered into the poverty of human existence. And then on the cross, he was separated from the Father. True poverty. True poverty to be separated from the Father. Why did he do that? So that you might become rich so that I might become rich towards God. And Paul applies that in 2 Corinthians and says, if you understand that, it gets real easy to give away your material stuff because you look at him and his poverty and you see what he did and you say, how can I do anything else? And all of a sudden giving away material things seems light. It seems simple compared to the weight of the kind of poverty that Jesus embraced. Does this make sense? So this is the first thing he's saying. Now, how does this help us 
access the power of the Spirit. Here's what I want you to see. Just follow, let's follow this example. If I obey this command, and it's an invitation then to receive and walk in the power of the Spirit, how does that play itself out? Well, if I'm faithful to give, let me just point out two things that happen. One, the chains around my heart of greed are broken. The chains around my heart that want to that want to hold on to things and have them, as I make a discipline of generosity, what happens is the chains of those material things that they have on me, that I must have them, that I need them, that's broken through that generosity, that's the power of the Spirit at work, isn't it? Does any chain get broken apart from the power of the Spirit? No, it's not your discipline that did it. It's the Spirit moving through obedience that does it. Can I tell you one other way you're set free as you are generous with your material possessions? The other way that you're set free is from uh, worry and anxiety. I mean, worry in particular. Some of us cling to material things because we're worried about what, ha- what would happen to us without them, right? You may not be a big spender, but you're a big old saver, right? Saving's great, but not if you're building up storehouses so that you don't have to worry because it's God who provides. It's God who makes a way. If you're counting on your bank account to save you, it's an idol, And so he says, be free from that. Give generously. Now, hear me, save. Saving is good, okay? Be a good steward. Save so that you can invest in kingdom purposes, all right? But he is clearly saying to us, break the chains of this hold, this worry in your life. You can do that. And the power of the Spirit flows through generosity. The last thing is you're unleashing the purposes of God into the world. You're bringing forward the kingdom into the world through your material possessions. And that is a way that the spirit is on the move through that. So I hope you're seeing what I'm getting at here. It's not just a command to be obeyed. It's an invitation to access the power of the spirit, both in the world and in your own life. That's way different than just going, here's a set of commands. I'm going to obey them. Now, let me get just two applications into the specificity of this text because I wanna make sure we address this specific context. He's saying support those who teach the word. So there's two applications. One is for, for all of us, you should, have a re- you should have a regular habit of giving here to the church. You just should. You should have a regular habit of giving here to the church. If this is your church home, you need to make a, a plan for that and you need to do that, all right? I won't belabor that. It's pretty clear, I think pretty obvious from this passage. Here's the second. Some of you are called into vocational ministry and I'm gonna speak to my younger brothers and sisters here probably who are discerning that a call into, into a ministry that is vocational where you get your living from it. Can I give you two applications? Even if I know it's just a subset of us. Uh, number one is you do not have to feel squeamish or, or squirmish uh, about receiving a living through teaching God's word and through being a minister of the gospel. That's a valid thing under the scriptures. So you don't need to feel like, oh, I shouldn't be able to do that or whatever. I think some people seem squirmy about that. You don't need to. If God has called you into it, then it's right that you would receive a living from that. So you don't have to worry about that. Number two, and this is probably more important for you, it's right and good for you to make a living from that if you teach the word of God. The second you stop doing that, you are no longer worthy of that living. Now, here's why I say that, because it's very, and I'll just speak from experience, it's very tempting the longer you are in vocational ministry to begin to believe that somehow your unique skill set or strategic mind or whatever it is are really necessary 
And what the people of God need is for you to exercise those gifts and you can very easily untether yourself from what is absolutely the only thing that gives your ministry any validity. And it is that you impart God's word to God's people. And I just, let me say that to those of you who are, who are kind of uh, thinking through a vocational calling. If I could just plant this in you right now and say, never stray from God's word, just never stray from it. Always understand that the only validity of your ministry is in whether or not you get God's word into God's people's hearts and minds. That's it. Do that. Everything else is gravy. All right, just do that. Impart God's word to his people, labor over it, strain with all the energy that he so powerfully works within you so that they might have it. When you sit down to think about what, you're, what you will do that week and as you get in front of God's people, just beg God for his word to be clear. Beg him to impart through you a clarity about his word, which is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword and never believe that the authority of your ministry or the effectiveness of it depends upon your wittiness, your humor, your intellect. It doesn't depend on any of those things. Bring God's word forward faithfully and clearly as best you are able and beg the spirit to move through you in power to do it. Okay? All right. I'm worried by the lack of response. All right. You know me, I'm a back and forth kind of guy. All right, that, whatever, that's gonna land, hopefully, somewhere in somebody's heart. All right, so that's command number one. Next is motivation he gives us. So he gives us a motive then to access the power of the spirit through these commands. And he's really generous to give us this because he doesn't just give commands, he also helps motivate us. So here's the, here's the motivation. You will reap what you sow. That's the motivation. You will reap what you sow. Look with me at seven, eight, and nine again. He says this, <coughs> excuse me. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So there's the principle. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. All right, so let me walk you through this. This is a simple principle. It's one we can certainly understand. I'm gonna reap what I sow. And he gives us a negative demonstration of that principle and a positive demonstration of that principle. He starts with the negative. He says, don't be deceived, Galatians. In other words, these people who are trying to convince you to embrace that you can receive salvation by adding works of the law to Jesus, don't be deceived by that. If you sow works of the law, you're going to reap the penalty of the law, right? You're going to reap what you sow. This principle is certain. And so then he says, God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That word for mocked is the word of, it's the idea of turning your nose up at something like it's repugnant to you, right? It's like sneering at it, snorting at it, right? It's like what a two-year-old does when you come with the, with the baby jar of peas, which are nasty, Right? And there's like, oh, oh, I want nothing to do with it. That's the picture that Paul is painting. God will not be sneered at. God will not be mocked. Well, how would you mock him? If you believe you can sow bad seed and reap good, a good harvest, you are mocking God. 
if you believe you can live any way you choose and invest in, remember what chapter five, verse 19 through 21 told us? Sexual immorality and envy and jealousy and strife. This list, I won't go through the whole list, but go back and look at it. If you think you can sow to the flesh, sow to those works and reap a harvest of joy and peace and life and kindness and gentleness, all these things, you are sadly mistaken, he says. You will not reap a harvest of good. Look, you, you sow wheat, you're gonna reap what? Wheat. You sow corn, you're gonna reap corn. And he says, you sow deeds of wickedness, bad seed, the flesh, you are going to reap corruption. And there's no exception. That is what you will reap. Now he gives us the positive side. Praise God, right? Because then he says, you know what else is certain? If you sow to the spirit, you're gonna reap eternal life. And he doesn't mean there, sow enough good deeds and you'll get to live forever with God. He means you will sow, if you sow the things of the spirit with your time and your energy and your gifts and your skills, if you sow things that are pleasing to the spirit, you will reap a harvest that is of an eternal nature, a qualitatively eternal life now, which is the demonstration of someone who will enter into eternal life because they have believed in Jesus and therefore received that eternal life. He's saying, you will reap love and joy and peace and patience, all the fruit of the spirit. You will reap that. Now, he gives us this principle because what he wants us to understand, the main motivation of this principle is its certainty. That's what he wants you to be motivated by. You can be absolutely certain. You don't have to wonder, if I sow good seed, is it possible that I will reap a bad harvest? If I sow to the spirit, is it possible that I might, after all that, end up reaping the things of the flesh. I might actually reap destruction and corruption and things that are ill-fitting and ill-gotten gains. And he's, his answer is absolutely not. If you sow to the spirit, you are going to reap things of an eternal, joyful nature. Praise God. You don't have to worry. Now, he tells us in verse nine, very helpfully, he says, but it might not happen in your timeline. Do not grow, that's why he says, don't grow weary. If you don't grow weary, you will reap a harvest. The idea there is don't half sow the field. Keep sowing, sow the whole field. Even if you're not seeing a harvest, keep sowing so that the entire field is sown so that when the harvest does come, because the harvest is going to come, you'll get the full harvest. So don't grow weary in doing good. In due season, you will reap. Not you might reap, you will reap. Now that phrase, in due season, is the exact same phrase that we saw in Galatians chapter four, verse four. And if you remember that text, it said this, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. In other words, what Paul was saying was, Jesus did not come on the scene a minute too early and he didn't come a minute too late. He came at the exact time that God intended him to come. And now he's applying that same terminology to this idea of sowing and reaping. And he says, in due season, not a minute too early and not a minute too late, but you will reap. Sow to the spirit and you will reap. Now I need to do one bit of clarification because I think it, it's necessary. How is this principle, this cause and effect, reap what you sow principle, how is it different than karma which is something very prevalent. How many of you said, oh, I'm, you know, that's good karma. It's good karma. I mean, we have businesses called credit karma. 
right? So this idea of karma, which is rooted in Hinduism and Buddhism, it's very different. And how is it not prosperity gospel? How is it not vending machine view of God? Sow this, put my quarter in and get the thing I want, all right? Well, two things I need to give is clarification because there is a relationship. There's a cause and effect principle here in the you reap what you sow. It's meant to motivate you, all right? But it is very different than both karma and the prosperity gospel. And I'll just try and say this as succinctly as possible. It's different than karma because karma believes you are essentially just putting good things out into the universe in some impersonal force will bring around or somehow cause there to be some good things that come into your life by simply putting good things out into the universe. So it's very much impersonal in nature and it tends to be primarily focused on creating a better reincarnated state for you after this life. So the scriptures speak very opposite of that. There is no such thing as reincarnation. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, Hebrews chapter nine says to us. We live once and once only. And after that life, we will stand before our maker. Now, so we're not worried about reincarnation, but what we are then saying is, when I say I am sowing and I'm gonna reap what I sow, what I'm doing is I'm not sowing to some impersonal force to see what might happen. I am sowing seed to a personal being who created me, loves me, and knows me. And I'm aiming to please him. Do you see the personal versus the impersonal? Very big difference. Okay. And because then it's personal, now let's go over to the prosperity gospel side and how this is different. The prosperity gospel says, I put the quarter in, I do the thing, and as a result, I get material wealth, I get health, I get good things here and now. Well, verse nine has already corrected that for us when it says, in due season you will reap, but don't grow weary. In other words, it might not come when you want it to come. And it's not talking about material gain. It's talking about receiving uh, kingdom blessing and walking that. Now, there could be a material element to that, but we do not dictate the result. We do not dictate the harvest. We sow to the Spirit, and we guarantee that we will reap from the Spirit, but we do not say, I must reap this exact thing from the Spirit. I don't control the reaping. I only live in the principle of reaping the things of the Spirit, whatever then the Spirit chooses to make those and bring to me. So there's a yieldedness and a surrender that goes into, I want to reap to the Spirit. I want to sow to the Spirit, sorry, so that I might reap the things of the Spirit. But it's not an attempt to control the hand of God and make him do. It is rather a yieldedness to him so that he will do through me what he chooses to do. Does that make sense? Okay, so we need to understand how that's different. I know we could go a lot further on that, forgive me, but we'll stop there. Okay, now, the thing there, the last thing I wanna say on that motivation is this, the reason that principle holds true, and really understand this now, because again, we're accessing the power of the spirit through obeying these commands. The reason that it holds true that I will reap what I sow, particularly in the positive sense, is because when I sow to the spirit, what I'm really saying is I'm joining the spirit in what he's already doing. I am jumping, if you wanna use the image of a river, I'm jumping in the river of the movement, of the flow of the spirit and where he's going and what he's doing in the world. And in yielding to that through my obedience, I'm just joining where he's already going. And as a result then, that's why the principle is always delivered. The spirit's always at work to put away unrighteousness and destroy the things of the flesh. And the spirit is always at work to bring about righteousness and joy and peace 
in the purposes of God. The Spirit's at work doing those, and I'm joining him in that. It's not a I do, therefore I get. It's a I join God in what he's doing. That's a big distinction and a big difference. All right, last command. It's a simple one, super easy. Do good to everyone. So verse nine, it says, don't grow weary in doing good for in due season you will reap if you do not give up. And then look at verse 10 again with me. He says this. He says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who have the household of faith. So let's just take that piece by piece. First, we need to understand what is good. What does that mean? That word good means something that's beautiful, commendable, or admirable. So here's the way, a simple way to think about it is the things that make God applaud. When he says do good to everyone, he's saying do things that make God want to applaud, that please him and satisfy him. Now, again, he certainly has in mind telling others about what Jesus has done, but it's clearly much broader than that. He's saying anytime you have a chance to meet a practical need to serve someone, do it. So here's the way you might summarize this command. Do things that make God applaud anytime you have opportunity for everyone with whom you have opportunity. That's a really broad command. That's really big. So you need something really important in order to be able to obey this command. You need to understand a theological concept we call the Imago Dei, the image of God. What that theological concept teaches is that every person, every person, Christian, not Christian, bears the image of the divine creator. There's a unique way. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation, more important than every animal that's ever been made, more important than the trees, the mountains, the seas. All those are beautiful and good. They do not bear the image of God. Human beings do. They are of greatest importance to God. Now, whether or not they believe in Jesus, every person that's ever been created down from the beginning of human history all the way to the end is someone who bears the image of God from the poorest to the richest, from the wisest to the least intelligent, from those the most gifted to the least gifted. Every person from every tribe, tongue, nation, language has borne the image of God. Now, I want you to imagine what does it look like to relate to the people who stand in front of you as though they bear the divine image. Now that in and of itself, we could spend the rest of, we could just spend days and days and days on that. I just simply want to invite you to remember that in your every interaction, the dignity with which you treat people, the way you view them as an object of opportunity to express the love of God in Christ towards them. All people are divine image bearers. That does not mean all people will spend eternity with God. That does not mean every person is the object of God's love rather than his wrath, his saving love rather than his wrath. It does mean that every person bears the image of God and is to be treated as such. So do good to everyone whenever you have the chance. That's the first thing. Now here, it might be helpful um, there's, a, there's a call here for doing practical good. It's that Matthew 25, Jesus saying to those who he ushers into his eternal kingdom, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me a drink when I was thirsty. You visited me when I was in prison. And those who are righteous say, when did we do that? And he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. When you gave them a cup of cold water in my name, 
you did it to me. So sometimes it helps to understand we're a church that use, we even have it in the name of our church, the word evangelical. And it's a very misunderstood term these days. It's mostly seen through a political lens. Through voting, Pew Research has done some research that shows that people who actually hold none of the theological convictions of an evangelical vote in a way that they identify themselves as evangelicals because they don't understand what the term means. Being an evangelical uh, has usually typically four components to it, and it has nothing, zero, to do with being a Republican or a Democrat. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay, I'm right and you're wrong. So we're just, (laughs) I'm, I'm going to help you see this for a moment. So I, you're kind of, let me joke with you, all right? So listen, here's what, if you like to shut your brain off here, I'm gonna talk about something called the Bebbington's Quadrilateral. So some of you who are real nerdy can go there with me and the rest of you, I'll call you back in just a moment, okay? So here's what the Bebbington's Quadrilateral is. It is a theological concept that helps us understand what an evangelical historically is. Four things that make someone an evangelical in distinction from someone who's theologically on the more liberal end of the spectrum, right? Versus someone who's on the more fundamentalist end of the spectrum. So if it helps you, some of you send your kids to CCA, Covenant Christian Academy. Here's the Bebbington's Quadrilateral. B-C-C-A. Bible, cross, conversion, activism. Bible, cross, conversion, activism. This is what makes someone an evangelical. An evangelical is someone who believes in the absolute authority of the Bible. Absolute authority. It dictates to us all that is right and good and teaches us how to live and is the authority for our life and our practice. We believe it is inerrant in its original autographs in everything that it says. Everything that it affirms, it is true. That distinguishes us from those who are more liberal theologically, right? We believe B, now here's the C, the C, the first C is the cross. We believe in the need for atonement. Sin has a penalty and it must be paid and Christ has paid it. We believe in the necessity of the cross, not just that it's a moral example, but that it paid a supernatural weight-bearing penalty. After we're done with Galatians, we're gonna spend four weeks talking about the power and work of the cross leading up to Easter so that we would understand its substitutionary work, its propitiatory work, its reconciliatory work, and its redeeming work, right? We want to know what it is to know the power of the cross and what it did. It has accomplished so much, you will never exhaust what it's done. Bible, cross, conversion. We believe in the need to apply that atoning work through faith and be born again. You must be born again. There must be a spiritual new birth. Evangelicals have always believed that. All those things tend to set us apart from those who are more theologically liberal. The last one, BCCA, activism, typically sets us apart from those who are more fundamentalist. Fundamentalists are typically skeptical of doing good works, the cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, as though it's the social gospel. Evangelicals from the very beginning have always believed that we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus because people need it to be saved. Bible, cross, conversion. We believe that we are called to live out our faith by meeting the needs of people practically here and now. We are to be a people who take up causes of justice and mercy, who minister to the poor and fight against injustice here and now. We want to be a people who are always proclaiming the gospel and always meeting people's needs here and now. So that's historically what an evangelical is. Does that help a little bit? All right. I hope it helps. It's not a political term. It's not. It's a theological term. That's what it means. That's what it's always meant. I I vote we keep it that way. All right. 
So now if you checked out, this is the time. Turn it, turn it back on. Come back in, all right? So last thing that we see here is when he says, do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. So what he's acknowledging there is that you and I, if you're in Christ, we have a supernatural connection. We have a supernatural bond. We are one in Christ. We are in the family of God together. I've talked about this a bunch. But the thing there that he's saying is it's natural and right and good that you would expect through your connection with one another in the spirit to have a unity and a sweetness of fellowship and a caring for one another that goes deeper than it does for those outside. There is a supernatural way in which we're connected. Therefore, it is right and good that we would care for one another, not neglecting the needs of the everyone. We have that command in front of us. Do good to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. There's an acknowledgement there of our need for one another. And it really is just John 17, where Jesus says, the whole world's gonna know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So love each other well, care for one another, bear each other's burdens, do good to one another. And as you do, it's an invitation to everyone looking to have this, to be welcomed into the household of faith. I mean, church, you really need to see, really, really need to see. One of the greatest arguments for people to believe in Jesus is the way we treat each other. Most people don't get treated with grace and mercy and love in their day-to-day life. Most people get beat up every day in many of the places they go. They get emotionally beat up. They get physically just, you know, strained. Life is pressing on them. And there is a sweetness that's meant to be to our fellowship. Lord, help us if we beat each other up. Man, we shouldn't be doing that. When we treat each other with grace and love and kindness, it testifies to who God is. That's why he's saying, give a special care. Special care to doing good to one another as well as keeping your eye on doing good to everyone. That's the invitation. All right, let's come to the table of the Lord now. Servers, if you wanna come, it'd be great. Friends, every time we come to the table, this is a, Tim reminded us so beautifully at the beginning of our time, this is an ordinance of remembrance. Last week we celebrated baptism together and that was really sweet. This is an ordinance of the other ordinance that we practice on a regular basis, and it's an ordinance of remembrance. As we hold the elements in our hands, what we're doing is we're remembering the sacrifice of Christ. We're remembering his cross and what he's done. And the scriptures give us a couple of instructions there that I'll just quickly remind us of. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you have not proclaimed faith in him and placed your faith in him, then I'm gonna invite you to let these elements pass. And the reason for that is this. We want you to consider in this time your spiritual condition. We want to invite you to consider that Christ has died to invite you into a reconciled relationship with God. And that's available to you in him. We would love for you to have that. We want you to be part of this family of faith. But if you are not at a place where you have yielded to that, then you don't need to take these elements because in taking them, everyone who takes them is saying, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I believe that we are reconciled to the Father through his finished work alone. And so we'll just invite you to use this time now as a time of consideration and weighing that so that you wouldn't take something you don't believe. Now, for those who do believe, 
Whether you're part of this body regularly or you're visiting, this table's open to you if you are a follower of Jesus. But the scriptures command us to examine ourselves as we take the elements, that we are in taking them saying, Jesus, I have every intention of walking in the power of the spirit in greater righteousness as I leave this place. So I will hold myself open to the conviction of your spirit, to the comfort of your spirit, to anything your spirit wants to guide and lead me in, in this time. So we'll take that time to examine now and to sit before the Lord. And I wanna invite you to do that as we come to the table. All right, so service, if you come, we'll take the elements together here in just a few moments.